Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 34. So turn there. And if you remember from last week, we're sort of in a movement that is really drawing to the close of the first book of the, what we're we're calling the first section of the first book of Isaiah, which is the section that's dealing primarily with the king and contrasting the um, God-appointed Davidic king of Judah with all of the other kings of the nation, and it's really dealing a lot with this question of faith and trust and trusting uh, trusting in worldly security or trusting in the God that makes and keeps his promises. And so we saw uh, last week, starting this last section, this, this close where Isaiah really just comes out and calls... Calls it what it is that um, that Judah's problem is that they are trusting in Egypt in an external power rather than trusting in God, and God contrasts that uh, that lack of faith with these reasons for um, not only why they should have faith in God, but but why having faith in anything but God is a fool's errand because God is sovereign over all of the earth. And he is going to carry out his sovereign purposes immediately in Judah's life. But then in the long term that God is sovereign over all of history. And that he is going to carry out to fulfillment his plans for the uh, fullness of time. To finally once and for all uh, cast out and destroy the wicked. And to save and redeem his remnant. To create a new heavens and a new earth where... Everyone will reign in, uh, in a new holiness and in a new perfection and a new peace and a new fruitfulness. And so Isaiah is sort of, remember we talked about this, he's sort of uh, conflating sort of immediate visions of uh, Yahweh conquering worldly armies with this ultimate vision of, uh, anybody remember that big theological word we learned last time? It starts with an E. Eschatology, Eschatology about end times. Okay, so um, he's sort of putting these visions of defeating these world powers with this final eschatological vision of subduing all of the people. And so we're going to pick up in that same stream of thought in chapter 34, and you will hear that this language of um, judgment and redemption in, a, in an eschatological sense still coming through. So this is chapter 34, verse 1. <clears throat> Isaiah says, Draw near, O nations, to hear. And give attention, O peoples, let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. That is typical eschatological language. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
For my sword has drunk its full in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, and it is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the bloods of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls, Their land shall drink its full of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. That's pretty upbeat language right there out out the get-go, right? Uh, But but this is talking about judgment again, isn't it? And uh, it's, it's important to take this in the context of everything that Isaiah has established up to this point. Because in a lot of ways, the chapters leading up to these verses are just his case being made against not only um, God's people, but all of the people of the nations. And remember, we said that that was one of the primary functions of a prophet, was to sort of be God's persecuting attorney, to come and to point at the law, right? Lawyers don't write the laws, they just, they just point to them, they just interpret them, and they're trying to draw cases and conclusions based on the laws that have been established. And so Isaiah is coming, and he's come to Judah, and he has held up to them, Judah and Israel, and he has held up to them the law of the covenant, and said that they have been unfaithful to the stipulations established in the Mosaic covenant, but then he's gone to all of the nations, and he's holding up to them sort of a natural law, that they um, have first and foremost not worshipped the one true God, but have worshipped idols. So they haven't been faithful, but then also that unfaithfulness and that worshipping idols has worked itself out in all kinds of sin and unrighteousness and sexual immorality and abuse of the poor and widows, of taking advantage of people. And so remember, up to this point, we've gone through this long list of this case, and the case has been clearly made, and so now we are seeing the judgment come out. And it's really cool, I don't know if you picked up on this, but in like verses 6 and 7, he's using... Um, sacrificial language. The Lord is using sacrificial language to sort of describe this judgment that he's going to carry out on... Here the case is specifically Edom, but Edom's sort of a stand-in for everybody, every, uh, everybody else that's not God's people by faith. And so it's sort of this, you know, they haven't offered sacrifices to God, so God is coming to take this sacrifice from them. Do you kind of hear the language that, like Hebrew says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sins? Well, they are not, uh, their sins are not remitted. And so God says, my sword is, has drunk its full. Like it's, it has, the measure of the wrath against you has been poured out, or has been built up, and it's about to be poured out like a cup. And so uh, that's kind of what's coming. Look at verse 8. For Yahweh, the Lord, has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense. Look at this. For the cause of Zion. So this is not indiscriminate just uh, judgment. This is an indiscriminate vengeance, but it is very discriminatory. And it is for the cause of Zion. It is for God's people. You remember that we said, um, we saw it back in... Verse 14 of chapter 33, this idea of God as a consuming fire. You remember we, we talked about that. and um, They asked the question, Whom among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And the answer is, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. And that's not righteousness on their own, but that is a people made righteous by God. And so God has a day of vengeance that is discriminating against all of those that are his people, his remnant. So he's discriminating in favor of the ones that are his people against all of these people who are not, who have 
uh, not turned in faith. Remember last time we saw a lot about this idea of repentance, of turning. And so now he's talking, he's, he's carrying out vengeance against those, one, those who have not turned to God. Now, we don't like that, do we? We don't, we don't like, especially in today's day and age, like, you know, depending on who was sitting in here, they may be like, wow, this just got uh, so exclusive. This got so narrow-minded. How could you dare say that, that it's fair for God to save this remnant of people but then carry out this kind of vengeance in such intense sacrificial language against all of these people who are not faithful? But, um, but as we see, it's going to... It's, it's going to kind of answer answer this question. So we'll keep on going, but this is very clearly the terms that we're talking about. Verses nine, verse 9, The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Do you hear the consuming fire language? Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste, and none shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is none there to call it a kingdom. All its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode of ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young and her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Isn't that all? I love that uh, Isaiah is using these really descriptive wildlife images. And that the images that he's bringing up are what you would expect to find out in the middle of nowhere. Anybody ever gone hiking before and you get kind of a ways away out from uh, civilization, as it were, and then you start seeing animals that you just don't see when you're here in town, right? That's what he's describing. And he's saying that all of these places where there were once nations, where there were once kingdoms, they will be burned over. And this is sort of picturing the judgment that God is going to work through other earthly powers to subdue nations like Assyria or Egypt or things like that, but it's longer term, that this uh, vengeance that God is carrying out on the world is a vengeance to wipe away and to sort of clear out, if you will, all of these sources of sin and rebellion and lawlessness. Did you see uh, in verse 11 that he says that he's going to work the line of confusion over the land and the plumb line of emptiness? Remember we talked about the plumb line, uh, a plumb line when, when Paul taught in chapter 28. Okay, you remember what a plumb line is? It's the thing, it's the measuring stick by which something is established. And he said in chapter 28 that, the God, that God's people would be established with this plumb line of righteousness. But when God carries out his vengeance on the world that is in rebellion against him, the plumb line is emptiness. Okay? But it's an emptiness that looks forward to being filled is what we hear. So he's pronounced that he's going to kind of wipe away, that it's going to become a wilderness, it's going to be empty. In verse 16, he says, Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. So none of those animals that are going to be all by themselves, what he's really saying still metaphorically is, What I have said, I will do. Okay? You can write it down. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. 
He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. That's saying it's going to be a complete removal. Okay? And then look at what happens to this, this wilderness that God has established in chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. When we talk about God coming and making a new heavens and a new earth, okay, a lot of times the mindset that we have when we think about these sort of future realities because of the way that we've grown up uh, the, the sort of culture that we've been brought up in is when we think about heaven, so to say, where you go when you die, or whatever it is, we think about eternal life. Uh, what we think about is sort of being like sucked out of our bodies as these little souls that go and like sit on a cloud with, a, you know, wings and a harp and we're just hanging out singing songs all the time. And when I was little, I thought, that sounds awful. Who, <laughs> you know, that is awful. And I remember telling my mom once, heaven sounds scary. Right? That we're just going to sing all day? Or what are we going to, you know? Um, and, and so then it also begs the question as if, if our, you know, little ghosts have gone up and get to be angels in heaven, um, what happens to everything else? And we think, well, that's Armageddon. That, that God's going to like nuke it and fire and everything's just going to blow up you know and so that's all going to be all that bad stuff's going to be gone we're going to be up in heaven with jesus and everything's going to be great and there's like streets of gold and things like that you know and i'm still i don't get it it doesn't make sense okay but that's not the vision of eternal life that isaiah has i'd argue that's not the vision of eternal life that the bible has okay that that god when he makes the new heavens and the new earth is remaking the heavens and the earth that he already made. That when God made everything in Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? It's good. It's very good. And and God doesn't have this plan of taking this very good thing that he made that, you know, we screwed up and being like, well, never mind, start over in heaven. No, that God is bringing heaven and earth together. That he is going to clear out all of the causes of sin, all of the causes of lawlessness, all of the problems and once he has done that, what does the wilderness do? The wilderness is like this desert, this, this frontier place. What does it do? It rejoices. And then it gets filled. And don't you love it? The desert blossoms like flowers. That doesn't make sense, right? You've got to pay attention to the language here. Do you see flowers in the desert? No. Why? Because the desert is a place of, of harshness, of a lack of water, of a lack of nourishment. And yet, when, once all of this is cleared out, God is going to renew and that's all metaphoric language, okay? That's not to say that there won't be deserts in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know, because deserts in their own way have their own kind of beauty. What God is saying is that this place where, where, like in Genesis 3, where we expected to see fruit, we see thorns and thistles instead, now we see flowers. So in the new heavens and the new earth, after God clears everything out, it's like he's, he's sort of threshed the, the field, and he's, or he's sort of hoed the field, he's plowed it all up, he's turned it all up so that new life can come out of it. That's the vision that Isaiah has. And that's the promise that not only will the creation share in, but the creation was meant to be filled with people. People that are faithful to God. People that God has already 
ransomed and redeemed that have turned to him. And so this is now he starts talking to the people, the people that have this hope and yet are on this side of that reality. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isn't that good? This, in a nutshell, is the Christian hope. Okay? In a small way. That we have a future-looking hope. And it's a real tangible hope. And if it's not, it's going to sell you short at some point. Okay? Because as, as uh, you know, maybe romantically people talk about that language as of us sitting on a cloud with Jesus. That really doesn't hold up against all of the temptations of this world, does it? That's really not a sure and steadfast hope. That's not something that I look forward to that's going to counteract all the temptations of this life, the temptations to trust in other things, or the temptations to indulge in other things. That is not a future hope, really. That's Looney Tunes. But if we have a real hope that God is going to save us and fix this and remove all causes of sin and and, and lawlessness, then we can trust that even in the midst of anything that's going on, God will fix everything that's the that's the point of this that god is going to fix this broken creation and he's going to take out all of the problems if you look let's just do this jesus says it better than i do turn to matthew turn to matthew chapter 13 and again this is not you know this is one of those things where it's like okay we want we want jesus to be like cool safe love everybody jesus but then you get these parables, which it's like, okay, I don't know what Jesus you're worshiping, but this is, <laughs> this is my Jesus, and I'm glad, okay? So listen, this is chapter, Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 36. This is a parable. He, uh, he left the crowds, and he went into his house, or into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, which is one that's just a few verses up. Um, where there's this picture of a farmer that goes out and plants a field, and in the night his enemy comes and scatters seeds for weeds, and they grow up, okay? So the, the plants that the farmer planted grow up, and the weeds grow up right alongside it. And so his servants are like, well, what do we do? And he says, well, let them both grow up until the time of the harvest, and then separate out the, the weeds from the wheat, and, and we're going to throw the weeds into the fire, but we're going to keep the wheat, okay? And Jesus is going to interpret this. So he answered, verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the field that the, the farmer is sowing the good seed into. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Okay, This is that continuing language of a consuming fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, 
Jesus is just restating what is a very um, common Jewish belief informed by writers like Isaiah, that the judgment is going to be a time, and did you hear what Jesus says, where all causes of sin and lawbreakers will be removed. And what's really interesting, and this is something that I think we've lost sight of in the modern age, is that the Jewish mind rejoiced in that coming judgment. Not in that people were going to be killed, okay? And we see elsewhere that God, like we've even seen it in Isaiah, that, that God weeps, he grieves over people that he has to carry out judgment on. But the only promise of a new heaven and a new earth that's perfect is a promise where all the causes of sin and lawlessness are taken out. Okay? And so if you haven't turned to be part of God's kingdom, then eventually you will be removed because otherwise you are a threat to the perfection in the new heavens and new earth. And that's what they're saying. But then look at what else. In, we're back in Isaiah chapter 35. This gets really cool. Still kind of with this eschatological vision looking forward, and he's talking about what's going to happen. In verse 5, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Remember, I think we might have touched on this a little bit already last week, that that, uh, the the eschatological reality, the the way that what we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, isn't a disembodied, we're like some ghost on a cloud. Um, We're definitely not going to be angels. So don't ever say that. And if you hear somebody say that, you can lovingly correct them. That no, when you die, that... That person has not become your guardian angel. Okay, that's not... Angels are angels. We are people. And our bodies are very good. Just like our souls are very good. That God doesn't have a view of of a soul separated from the body. When Jesus was raised, was he just raised the second person of the Trinity disembodied? No, he was raised in his body. He's still in his body. His body is in the heavenly dimension right now, but he is still his body, okay? And so when we are raised in the end, we will be raised in bodies, but what kind of bodies? Bodies where the blind see. Bodies where the deaf can hear. Bodies where the people that can't walk can walk, where the people that can't talk can talk in new bodies, okay? Because our bodies, you guys don't know this yet because you're like 20, okay? But your bodies are going to start wearing out. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna start uh, feeling the effects of age. That things are gonna start breaking and not getting better. You know, it used to be you could just bounce back. You could eat like 15 tacos one day and then still be fine the next day. Okay, all right. If I ate 15 tacos, I would be in bed. Okay, like already, and I'm not that much older than you guys, and I'm feeling it. Okay, um, that that our bodies are going to break down. That you get sick. That you get hurt. If you're in an accident, you can't. Uh, you know, sometimes damage happens that can't be undone, but it will be undone. And that's the future hope. But where this gets really cool is there's one, uh, there's one instance where we see eyes of the blind being opened before heaven. Where the ears of the deaf are being unstopped before the new heavens and the earth, new earth. Where lame men get up and they leap like deer, where mute people start talking. Can you think of where another time where all of these things start happening? Jesus. Around the ministry of Jesus. You ever wonder, like, what's the deal with all the miracles that Jesus does? Like, when you read the Gospels, you're like, okay, how am I exactly, like, that's cool that he did that. 
that stuff doesn't really happen like that anymore, or should we expect it to? I don't really, but what does that have to do with Jesus dying on a cross? Like, why is he walking around doing all these miracles and signs all the time? Okay, and it's cool when you read and you see in the gospel is Jesus is pointing to Isaianic promises a lot. Like when John the Baptist is in jail and he says, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, ask John what he sees. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute talk, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus says, I'm everything that Isaiah is talking about with his king coming. And all of these miracles, all of these things that, that are happening around Jesus are Jesus saying, I am the means by which heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth come about. That Jesus is the inauguration of the hope that we have. That Jesus is the promise of the hope that we have. That he's walking around doing all of the things that we expect to see in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that should give us hope that it really is going to happen. And also that should give us hope that Jesus is the means of that coming about. Isn't that cool? So Jesus going around healing the the blind and the deaf, that's not insignificant. That's eschatological. That's him saying, I am the coming king. I am the hope. And it's starting already in part, in a foretaste, and it will come to fruition in the last day. And if you had any doubts about it, let me make it happen. Isn't that awesome? Okay? And when you think about that getting tied up with forgiveness of sins, when Jesus heals the guy that, that can't walk, Okay, because forgiveness of sins is something that we see expressed in the end as well. And so when he forgives the guy's sins, and then they're like, who can forgive sins? And he says, well, who can tell somebody to get up and walk? Get up and walk. And he gets up and walks. I am the bringer of the future into the present. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Isn't that awesome? And Isaiah is, Isaiah is just grasping at it, trying to see it. So, verse 5 again. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer... And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Why? Because they're not there. They've been taken out. And it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Beautiful. Beautiful promises, beautiful hope. Now we're going to turn to this next section, which is really interesting in Isaiah. This is how he um, closes out the, the remainder of this book of the king. As he is going to go in, you, you can probably notice when you're looking at it, like, wow, what happened? You know, usually the, the typesetting in this book is really skinny and really skinny columns because it's poetry. But then all of a sudden it's just like big blocks of text for several pages. What's, what's going on here? That it is moving to narrative, and actually what it is, is these verses, 36 through um, 39, are almost verbatim from the book of Second Kings, chapter 18. Okay, Chapters 18 and 19, if you want to turn, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to look it out, you'll see it's the exact same text, more or less. Okay, And, and what uh, 
Isaiah is doing and what the writer of the kings were probably doing was that there was other chronicles written of all of these different historical accounts of what was happening with the kings and things like that. And there was a section that actually people think that Isaiah wrote kind of a biography of King Hezekiah. And so there was a there was a chronicle of what happened specifically with King Hezekiah that you know was this book, and when Isaiah was putting together his prophecy and there he was compiling everything into the scroll, he took a big snippet of that chronicle about King Hezekiah and he put it in his book at a very specific time and a very specific place. And the writer, whoever wrote Second Kings, was doing the same thing. So they took this big section of what was written about. You know, and if you've read the Kings, you hear that. They said, if you want to read anything else about this king, you can turn to this book, right? You remember when, when we read through Kings last year that, that they make references to all these other books all the time. It would be like when you're writing a research paper, you know, and you kind of put a bibliography in it. So Isaiah has taken this section about the life of King Hezekiah, and he has dropped it in right here to kind of close out his point with a word picture. Okay, this point of what he has been talking about the entire time in this book up to this point, this question of trusting in God or trusting in the other powers. And he's going to use King Hezekiah as a word picture. Okay, and remember, we've seen, we've really focused on two kings in this section. We focused on King Ahaz and we focused on King Hezekiah. There was uh, King Uzziah who dies at the very beginning. Ahaz was his son. Then Ahaz has a son named Jotham, which we see very little about at all. And then we see Hezekiah. And Ahaz and Hezekiah are sort of contrasted. You remember Ahaz, we saw Ahaz didn't believe in God at all. Like he was was quick to trust in world powers. He was quick to trust in and these other things to the point where God actually came to Ahaz. Do you remember this? He came to Ahaz and he said, what what sign do you want from me to prove to you that I will protect you, that I will take care of Judah and Jerusalem, that I will guard and preserve the name of my king, David? What sign do you want from me? And Ahaz, remember this, didn't want a sign. He used like pious language to say, oh, I'm not going to test God. But really the reason that he was saying that was because he had already determined in his, in his own heart that he was going to trust Egypt, he was going to trust these other powers, he wasn't going to trust God. And so God handed him over and uh, things did not go well for them. Okay? And Assyria increased against them. Now Hezekiah, Hezekiah is the like antithesis of Ahaz. Okay? When you read in 2 Kings, in like 2 Kings chapter 17, where it talks about Hezekiah taking over, it says that there was never a king like Hezekiah after Hezekiah. Which isn't saying a whole lot because the kingdom wasn't around that much longer after Hezekiah. But it says Hezekiah did righteously like his father David. That Hezekiah is, is the closest thing they got to David since David and Solomon. Okay, That he was, he was a good king. And one of the best things that Hezekiah did was he took seriously God's call to not worship idols. And so he worked out this religious program throughout all of Judea, and he cut down all of the idols, he cut down all of the places of worship, he cut, and he said, we're only going to worship God in Jerusalem. So he was faithful, he enacted a bunch of reforms, and, and he was a good king, okay? And, and so we're going to just jump in where Isaiah has us jump in, which is sort of strategic in chapter 36. So we're picking up with this Hezekiah, who is as close to King David as they're going to get. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Rabshakeh was like an official. So he was... The, so Assyria has come in. They've started, they've started fighting against the cities of Judah. And they are coming up to Jerusalem. It's getting closer. This is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. Okay, that Assyria would come up to the neck, remember? But it wouldn't go up over their head. And so this is what's happening as Assyria's come in. And the king of Assyria sends this official, the Rabshakeh, to come and talk to King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and there came out to him, so this is a delegation sent from Hezekiah out to the Rabshakeh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So it's like, very rarely will President Obama talk to Vladimir Putin, but President Obama will send John Kerry to talk to Vladimir Putin's John Kerry, and they'll talk, okay? But it's really like the two leaders are talking through these representatives. That's what's sort of happening here. And so verse 4, The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Listen to this. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So, in this case, the king of Assyria, the Rabshakeh, is... is basically standing in for Isaiah and calling out the folly of trusting in Egypt, which it seems like Hezekiah is, has either started doing or is tempted to do, which has been the whole problem all along, okay? And remember, that's, geography is a lot in play that, that Assyria is to the north, Egypt is to the south, Egypt is trying to fight Assyria, so to go up, Egypt has to go through Judea, through Palestine, where they are, and so there's a real temptation to trust in Egypt, and the Rabshakeh is saying, what, you... you you're trying to resist us because you trust in Egypt? That's a bad idea. Okay? They're boasting. They're, they're challenging the king of Assyria and saying, what, what reason do you have to trust? But then he goes a little deeper. Verse 7. But if you say to me instead, we trust in Yahweh, our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How, can they, and how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Did you hear the taunting? They're taunting Hezekiah. They're taunting uh, the people of Israel. And they're saying, oh, are you going to say that you trust in the Lord? And he's sort of calling into question, this same Lord that, that Hezekiah has said you shouldn't worship? He's sort of twisting what Hezekiah has done with this latent paganism that's around the world around them, where everybody else, it made perfect sense. That's why Israel did it, was they made these altars in the high places, and they worshipped all of these, uh, they set up all of these other temples and things like that that they shouldn't have done, that, that God said, only worship me in Jerusalem. But the the 
Assyrians are looking at him and is like, man, Hezekiah actually screwed you guys over because he got rid of all of these other practices of worship. So your God's probably angry at you because you're not worshiping him the way that we worship our gods. So it's kind of an interesting aside, but they're, but they're calling out and they're saying, you have nothing. You can't stand against us. You couldn't even put riders on your horses. If we gave you horses, you have to trust in Egypt and your God, who's your God. And then they get extra blasphemous and they kind of like, you know what? Our God, they're that God sent us to come and conquer you. Okay. That, that your God doesn't even like you. Verse 11, then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. And that's really interesting. That At this time in the Near East, Aramaic was sort of the, um, it's called a lingua franca, okay, or a trade language, or it was the language that, that um, educated, it's kind of like English today you know like you can go to other places and there's a good bet that most people that you're trying to do business with speak english okay um at this time aramaic was kind of that business language and so usually when when two officers from different countries would come and talk they would talk in aramaic but what the rabshika is doing is he's speaking in hebrew he's speaking the language that everybody can understand and you imagine this delegation they come Everybody is watching. Everybody has standed on the wall. They're meeting outside of the wall. Everybody's watching. And the Rabshakeh are saying these really taunting, boastful things, not in Aramaic, but in Hebrew, so that everybody can understand. And what they're kind of hoping in is that not everybody is on board with Hezekiah's faithfulness to Yahweh. That not everybody is on board with this reform that Hezekiah has done. And so these officers ask them, uh, Will you not? Will you speak in Aramaic so that these people don't can't hear and get scared? Is basically what they're saying. But the Rabshka said, "Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine, which is what happens in a siege?" Then the Rabshka stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, that's in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king. So he's talking to the people, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That's what Hezekiah is saying. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Do you hear the, what's happening here? Don't trust Hezekiah, David, and the king in whom God has made all these promises. Don't trust Hezekiah, trust me, Assyria. Okay? And then look, he, he not only um, makes the threat that, you know, Hezekiah is not even going to be able to defeat me, but look at, he starts making promises. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and I take you away to a, a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Again, do you hear the blasphemous kind of language? But this is... 
a word picture for everything Isaiah has been talking about up to this point, even down to the promises that the king of Assyria is making. Um, it was, and it's by well, very well documented that what Assyria would do when they would conquer somebody is they would move them. It was a forced deportation. They would move them from where they were and force them to settle in another place, and that would totally undercut any. Um, defenses that they had. It would undercut any claims to identity that they had. Usually they would kind of mix them up with different people so that they would lose their identity in this being moved, transplanted from one place to another. It's kind of like what happens in cities nowadays where there was a neighborhood that had a really strong cultural identity. You know, it was like an Italian neighborhood or a Jewish neighborhood or an African-American neighborhood. And then when um, things come in and they kind of get deported, they get moved out when different, you know, economic things happen in the cities and what happens is it blows up this in, the sort of ethnic and cultural identity of that neighborhood and so it just gets sort of lost it just sort of dissolves and everything else and that's what the Assyrians did is they kind of reinforced their Assyrian program by dissolving the cultural identities of all of these other people and one of the other ways that they did that was that they destroyed their system of worship so that's why he comes in and he said what about all these other gods Okay? And this is, again, classic pagan understanding of how the world works. That if, if your army wins, then your god must be stronger than their god. That's how he, that's how Hezekiah, or I mean, that's how the king of Assyria is sort of framing this. And he's saying, look at all of the other people that we've conquered. And even most detrimentally is that right before this delegation comes, right before all of this stuff has happened, Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. We saw that in that. Second Kings chapter 17. So Judah's all by itself. And even Israel, who sort of in part worshipped Yahweh, although they had long ago departed into worshipping false gods and things like that. That's what Second Kings says. Even they had been conquered. And so the king of Assyria is going around and saying, who has been able to, none of these gods have been able to stand against me and my gods. Okay, so it's blasphemous. It's prideful kind of language. And it's meant to call into question and make the people of Judah wonder, are we, are we next? Is our God stronger than these other gods that God destroyed? Is our God stronger than this unstoppable king of Assyria? Shouldn't we trust in him? Because what he's saying is, like in verses uh, 16 and 17, he says, Don't listen to Hezekiah, listen to me, and I'll let you eat your own land until I move you into a land that's just as good. And so he's sort of framing this language of, I'm going to completely destroy your cultural identity by forced deportation with false promises. Trust me, and things are going to be just as good, or if not better. And that's the language that sin always speaks in, okay? Don't trust God, trust me, and it will be better for you. So that's where they are. Verse 21, But they were silent, and they answered him not a word. For the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of Yahweh. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. 
Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, we don't know uh, to, to what extent Hezekiah had tried to trust in... Justin, could you shut that door? Uh, we don't know what to extent uh, Hezekiah has tried to trust in Egypt, although that we can tell when we look at Second um, Kings and, and some of these other things that Hezekiah hasn't uh, totally, even though he's worked all of these reforms and things like that, he hasn't been brought to the point where he has no other recourse but God. Okay, and so he's he's doing what you would think a good king would do, and so we see in Second Kings that he's he's being political. Okay, that there's one point where he tries to pay off the Assyrians with a lot of money, with a lot of gold, and then the Assyrians betray him. Um, the the Assyrians here accuse him of of putting trust in Egypt. Maybe he has. We don't know to what extent. Um, that's happened, although Isaiah presumes that that's been happening a lot. He's tried diplomacy. He's tried these other methods. He's tried all of these worldly political means, and nothing has worked. And finally, the rapture has come with the most um, devastating and blasphemous, idolatrous words, and everybody is uh, <coughs> losing hope. Isaiah, or, I mean, uh, Hezekiah starts to panic. And so he goes into the house of the Lord, he tears his clothes, and he sends these delegates to Isaiah. And it's finally like in turning to Isaiah, it's sort of his, this is, this is all I have left. And sometimes that's God's grace, isn't it? To, to work out circumstances in our lives in such a way where he strips away every other source of trust, where nothing seems to work, we can't get traction any way that we want, and we're brought to the conclusion, I have nowhere else to turn but to the Lord and to the word of the Lord. And that's the point that Hezekiah comes to. And so he turns to Isaiah, and it's really interesting that he says, um, he tells Isaiah to pray. He tells Isaiah to pray to God, and maybe God will hear these words of the rapture cut, and he will hear these words, and God will do something to protect this remnant that is left. Look what happens in verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So you have to remember the picture. Okay, The rapture has come not by himself, but with an army. They're already at Jerusalem. Hezekiah has torn his clothes and sent these people into Isaiah, and they say, Isaiah, pray for us. And what does Isaiah do? Does he pray? No. Isaiah doesn't pray at all. Why? Because Isaiah doesn't need to. He doesn't need to hear from God what's going to happen. He's been saying what's going to happen all along. Isaiah already knows the response to this. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't pray in times, okay? But, but what it's saying is that Isaiah's like, fine, look, you don't even have to ask. I've been telling you. And he brings up verses like in chapter 14, where he makes that interim fulfillment that Assyria is going to fall. And he says, look, you don't have to worry. This is what I've been saying all along. Don't worry about Assyria. And then he says, I'm going to send a rumor. They're going to return to their own land, and I'm going to make them fall by the sword. Look at verse 8. The rapture returned. He just left. And he, he's returned with, presumably with the reply of Hezekiah that says, look, I'm not going to trust you, okay? 
you can do your worst, but I'm going to trust in God. And so the rapture leaves with Hezekiah's reply. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to trust in Yahweh. And the rapture finds the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhakah, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. Now, there's a lot that happens in a few verses, but what that's saying there, what, you know, and you know these names and the things that are going on, is that exactly what Isaiah said would happen would happen. That when, even though Assyria was in position to fight Jerusalem, all of a sudden they just turned around and left. And they heard these weird rumors that were very unlikely, and yet they don't come in and invade Jerusalem. That God worked just through rumors to keep Assyria from invading Jerusalem. And so when all of that happens and the king hears Hezekiah's statement, I'm not going to trust you, I'm going to trust in God, he sends these messengers back. And this is what he says in verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezaph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sepharvim, uh, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? So again, where are all these other kings? Where are all these other gods? So now he's not uh, playing games anymore. He's not talking about Egypt anymore. He's just talking straight to Hezekiah. All of these other kings I have destroyed, what's going to happen to you? And kind of the implied question here is, what's going to happen to the king of the God of Judah? That makes sense? That God has said from the very beginning, I am the God of the king of Judah in Jerusalem. I am the God that has appointed King David and all of his descendants. I am going to stand by my anointed one. And this is a direct combat between Assyria and Yahweh. Okay? The king of Assyria and the king of Jerusalem. Verse 14. This is how this is how you want the king of Jerusalem to respond. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So in the last instance, and there's an interval of several months, if not years, between when these different things are happening. The first time when Hezekiah was kind of brought to his knees, he just went to Isaiah and asked Isaiah to pray for him. But this time, after he's seen God work and protect them from Assyria, that first time, it's like Hezekiah's faith is growing. He's trusting in Yahweh more and more. And so this time, when it happens, these guys, and you kind of love the picture. These guys come with this letter. They bring the letter to Isaiah or to Hezekiah. It says, here's this letter from the king. And it's like really taunting. It's really boastful, okay? That what are all these other kings? Who are these other kings? Don't put your trust in, in God that says that he's going to protect Jerusalem because none of these other gods have worked. And so they give this letter to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, they're expecting a response right then. And you ever been in a situation where things get really... Um, really stressful and then you panic and you make a rash decision Okay, when you're, when you're overwhelmed with a lot of stuff happening Hezekiah is in one of those situations I would be freaking out right now but what Hezekiah does because God has grown his faith so much is he takes that letter and he says excuse me guys and he just walks away while they're st- standing there he walks into the temple he lays it down at the altar and he prays he doesn't ask Isaiah to pray he just takes all of his circumstances isn't that a great picture he takes all of his circumstances and he just lays them down before God, and he prays. And listen to what he says. Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh, 
O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord your God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah has some great theology in the midst of cultures that have terrible theology that have these understandings that their gods are true gods, these gods that they made out of wood and stone. Even the king of Assyria thinks that their gods are really gods, just that his god's better. Okay, But Hezekiah comes in, and look what he says. He says, Lord, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. There's no other god. And not only is our God the only God, but he's not just our God. He's the God of all of the kingdoms. So whatever happens, happens because God says so. And so he's saying, listen to us. And this boast of this king with which he mocks the living God. He says, the only reason that that king has succeeded and conquered these so-called other gods is because they're made out of wood. And the only reason he succeeded up to this point is because God has allowed him to succeed. Which is exactly what Isaiah said. So he says, Now God save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And what he's asking is an impossible thing at this point. It's it's all but assured that Assyria could come in and conquer Jerusalem. But look at verse 21. While Hezekiah is praying, then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Do you see that? Because you have prayed to me. Now, I'm not going to even start to touch the nature of God's sovereignty and free will and response to prayer and anything like that. All I'm going to say is, what does this say? God did something because Hezekiah prayed. You've got something going on right now? Lay it before the Lord and pray about it. God says, because you have prayed, this is the word that the Lord has spoken. So here's a prophecy. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Talking to Assyria. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up against the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. So it's talking about the Assyrians and their hearts that they are boastful, that they have gone up to the heights to cut down cypresses. It's probably metaphorically for kings, okay? And so they think, the king of Assyria thinks he is sovereign. But then look at verse 26. I love, this is one of those moments in Isaiah where God is just all of his awesome power in, in boasting over everybody else. In verse 26 he says, Have you not heard? 
that I determined it long ago, Assyria? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. That's the same language where Isaiah says that Assyria is just an axe, and the axe can't boast over the one who wields it. That God says, yes, you have conquered these other kings because I have allowed it. I have made it happen. And I know, verse 28, you are sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you are raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this, now he's talking to Judah, shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And look at this, how it ends. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Sherezer his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon his son reigned in his place. So Hezekiah has prayed. God responds. I hear your prayer. He gives him in verse 30 another prophecy. Okay, That for two years the, the standoff against Assyria is going to be so bad that you're not going to be able to go out and plant, plant, plant crops. But you're still going to be able to eat. That I'm going to supernaturally make the grass the the crops grow and then in the third year say so he's what he's saying is in three years this is all going to be over with in three years you're going to know that everything is going to turn out just fine and you're going to plant your own vineyards again and he says the king of assyria is not going to come into the city why for my own sake and for the sake of my servant david and then i love this last picture we'll just end with this that then they, they are uh, standing off and the angel of the Lord comes out and kills all of these people. In this amazing act of divine intercession, a whole army dies. And they all go home defeated. And the king, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, never tried to touch Jerusalem again. We know that for a fact. That the Assyrians never conquered Jerusalem. And that the king of Assyria never tried again. He took his ball and went home. And he reigned for another 20 years, but he never once tried to conquer Jerusalem again after this, this thing that happened. And then I love this, that it says that he was worshiping in the house of his God, Nisroch. And that's meant to be contrasted with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews. 
that in this amazing moment where a whole army comes up against the place where God dwells, their God moves in such incredible power that he kills 185,000 people and sends them packing and protects the city that he has caused his name to dwell in and where he has established his king, David. And then here's the king of Assyria who goes into the little temple of his God and that God can't even protect Sennacherib from his own two sons sneaking in and killing him in the place where that God is. So it's meant to contrast how powerful Yahweh is against how um, non-existent Nisroch, the God of Assyria, is. And it's meant to be a final culmination that all of these promises that Isaiah has made about the Assyrians came true and that Sennacherib is ultimately sent home defeated and just dies. And it's meant to validate everything that Isaiah said would happen. And with that, we end the major, the first major section of Isaiah and the promise of the king. And it, and it ends kind of with that note. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And God, having established that, uh, then goes into this next part, which we'll talk about next week. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us to impart these truths that you are truly a God that is this great that will fight our battles for us. Um, Help us to take whatever it is that's um, coming up against us and just lay it down before you and pray. God, whatever it is that these men and women in this room have or anyone that's listening, God, would um, they would just take that to you and not in panic but in trust. Help us to believe in who you are and not be tempted by the the lies of the enemy, the lies of the world. Lord, to not be a part of the causes of sin and lawlessness, but to trust that you are going to defend us and that for the sake of your son, Jesus, the greater David, you will subject all of the enemies under your feet and you will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Help us to hope in this uh, rescue, this redemption that you will work for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.